seven weeks um, focusing on, um, you guys, I need that screen if I'm going to preach it in the right amount of time, um, focusing on unity. Now, you might think, um, seven weeks on unity, that's, that's kind of a lot of time. I mean, how much is there to say? Like, be unified, um, shouldn't, you know, like, love each other, you know, get along. Um, if you have ever driven, like, cross-country or something with little kids in the car, um, you know, my kids—today's oh, my second daughter's 16th birthday. Rachel, happy birthday. Um, yeah, it's getting bad. Uh, I, I've decided to start waking her up at 3 a.m. every day because she doesn't need any more beauty sleep. It's becoming a problem. She, she's smart and pretty, and it's, it's a problem. So we're going to start waking her up, like, somewhere between midnight and 3, it'll be different every day, just to keep her— keep her as plain-looking as possible. Um, so, uh, but anyway, we, many, many trips cross-country with these four children of mine who are now seven, 17, almost 18, just 16, 13, and 8. And you, you know, you get these moments after a while where even if you give them electronics, they start fighting with each other and bickering about whether or not Taco Bell is a sufficient restaurant. And, um, and you, you just, so like every parent, what do, I, what do I yell at my children when I'm trying to drive? Would you just get along? Right? I've given you everything! You're in a big car, you have your own seat, you have a screen for heaven's sake, we've only been in here eight hours, like, pinch your bladder and get along! Right? We're trying to get somewhere for you and me. And um, it's one of the reasons why people who have families and children, they refer to times when you like take time off from work and travel somewhere to do something with your kids as a trip rather than a vacation. <laughs> right? It's not a vacation, it's a trip. Right? If you went by yourself without your kids, it would be vacation. If you go with your kids, it's a trip. Right? So that they can have memories and experiences. Your memories being anger, and theirs being like Disney World, you know? So, um, the, the problem is, is that like, when you get to that point, right? That's right. Is it, you've got a lot of kids, yeah. Um, the problem is when you get to that point, like, it's too late. Like, if you have to tell people to get along, it's kind of like running an organization and telling people to be loyal. Right? It's like it's the, 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 the horse is out of the barn already, right? In order for unity to be achieved, sustained, or maintained, like, there has to be other stuff already in place so that when the trials to unity come, we overcome them. Does that make sense? Now, it's also really important because the same acts, beliefs, vision, and virtues that produce unity in the church, which is Jesus' main focus in the scriptures, is the same thing that produces good everything in terms of human relationships. Does that make sense? So, for example, if you—let's say um, you look at the, what you think is the highest possible level. It's not the highest possible level, but a lot of people in the, in the secular world think it is, like world peace, right? I want world peace. Okay, great. The, um, the human disciplines, vision, and actions necessary to create and, and be protective of Unity in the local church is the exact same virtues that everybody in the world would have to have for us to have world peace. Or if you want a functioning government, or a tranquil society, or voluntary cooperation for some social improvement. You want to improve racial disparities, or achievement in school, or whether or not there's a lot of dandelions in the stupid park you take your kids to. Like all these, like you need to cooperate for that. Or economic free exchange, or um, warm relations with your neighbors, healthy friendships in social circles, a rich family life, Positive interaction with strangers, lasting romantic love, psychic integrity inside your own mind, so that your own soul isn't being torn apart with a certain kind of adversarial disunity inside of you, and 
for you to be in real union or unity with God himself. The same principles by which God builds among his disciples unity in his local church, the body of Christ, are the exact same principles, actions, visions, and virtues as is necessary for good social relations in every context of human beings everywhere. They are universal. And to a certain extent, most of what I say, stripped of its spiritual content, could easily be agreed upon by wise and sensible atheists. However, they are best embodied, most clearly taught, most completely lived out, filled with proper motivation, and that get down to the deepest part of the human soul in the one who knows and created the human soul, Jesus the Christ. And in order for this to be achieved, scripturally speaking, it must be achieved with Jesus. If you notice, discussion of unity in the Bible is always focused on the people of God. Why? What, what about with our neighbors that aren't believers? Aren't we supposed to have unity with them? Not really. I mean, the Bible doesn't say that we should achieve it. What does the Bible say we should do with our non-believing neighbors? That we should be peacemakers. Well, what's the difference? If God says, you should have unity with us, and then he says, as we go out into the world, you should be peacemakers, what he's saying is this. You could go out into the world and do everything right, <laughs> trying to be a peacemaker, and you can fail miserably. Because you just may not have the resources with the people you're interacting with to create peace, right? It says in the book of Romans, to the extent that it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. There shouldn't be a single relationship in your entire life where there isn't peace because of you. But that doesn't mean you're going to have peace in all your relationships. Far from it. Right? I mean, Jesus got killed, right? So did all of his apostles and many millions of people who followed him. Hasn't been a particularly good year in Nigeria, for example, where there were murders and burnings and rapes and pillaging on Christmas. Right? You can try to live at peace with your neighbors. You won't always succeed. Right? Out there, we are always to be peacemakers. But in here, God says, you should have unity. Why? Because if those of us who belong to the Church of God are credibly regenerate, we belong to Jesus. God has done the miracle of regeneration in us. We walk by his spirit. We believe in his truths. If those things exist, we should be able to achieve unity. It's not a, it's not a pipe dream. It's not a—as much as it depends on you. We're agreed on the basis of cosmic and human unity. We should be able to achieve it. And so Jesus demands that we do. Um, conceptually speaking, I think it's important that we recognize that um, unity is a vision more than it's a virtue. Unity is a vision more than it's a virtue. Like, unity is not something you do inside yourself. It's not a personal developmental thing where you're like, I'm going to grow in unity. You don't grow in unity. You can't grow in unity. Unity is outside of yourself. Unity is something achieved. It's a vision that we see in our mind's eye that we want to bring about. It's a goal. It's a value. It's a pursuit. Right? It's like having a good marriage. You don't build the virtue of having a good marriage right? You try to build the virtues in yourself so that you can become the kind of person who could have a good marriage, like that you don't, like, make fights worse, that you serve rather than want to be served constantly, like all those personal virtues. And then you have a, a romantic vision for what it's like to love somebody over a long period of time. In your mind's eye, you know what it means to, to love, and you, you, like have, you have strong feelings about it. You, you want to achieve it, and you care about it, right? And then when the vision comes together with the virtues, and you live them out in action— you have the possibility, if the other person is fully committed to that as well, you could have a lifelong loving relationship. Off and on, at least. Right? 
And so when God calls us to unity, he calls us to a picture of something, right? And he gives us all kinds of metaphors for it. The body of Christ, the temple of God. Those are all corporate metaphors for how we are all one together. And all through scripture, as you start to walk through the Bible, this comes up again and again and again and again and again. So much so that like sometimes younger people are super idealistic about this. They think that if you just yell, hey kids, get along in church enough, that people will get along, right? And I just want to say to them, just wait till you have kids, right? But, um, but the Bible is constantly saying that unity should be something that we experience, and on a pretty profound level, right? So like, here's some of these passages. Philippians 4.2 says, I plead with, and he names two people in the church in Philippi, to agree with one another in the Lord. Romans 12.16. Live in harmony with one another. 2 Corinthians 13.11. Finally, brothers, aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind, and therefore live in peace. 1 Corinthians 1.10. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there may be, may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. In Philippians 2.28, it says, at the end of 27, it says, um, Then I know that you are standing firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of, faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, Ephesians 4, 3. Make every effort to keep the spirit, the, the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. John 13. I give you this new command to love one another as I have loved you. You must love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. In John 17, he says, Jesus is praying to the Father. My prayer is not for them alone, that is his present disciples in the first century, but for those who will believe on their message. That's you that they all may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity, to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. So I want you to see from this that there's a number of reasons why God commands unity, right? One is that it's just, it's good. God is good. God is in unity with himself. God is in unity with everything that is good. And therefore, if we belong to him, it's just functionally and fundamentally good that we would have unity. But in these passages, there's other really important things that he says. For example, just in John 17, it says, one, that the unity that exists between the Son and the Father is part of their glory— and that by giving us the possibility of being in union with Christ and the Father, and therefore through that spiritual union, unity with each other, he is giving us access to experience his glory. That is the best of everything. The best and greatest of everything we can be part of in being unified with Christ and so with each other. Right? So one, unity gives us access to the glory of God. There's no other thing in the Bible— no other place in the Bible that speaks in that language. Do you understand? Right? It's easy for us to say. It's hard for us to feel. Okay? But that's a, it's a bigger idea than you're capable of feeling right now where I am. But just let that sit in there. Let it percolate. Maybe the Spirit can ignite it somehow. S secondly, he says, um, us loving each other demonstrates that God loves us. And it demonstrates to the world 
that Jesus is the Christ, that God is glorious, and that the gospel message to bring them into reconciliation with God is in fact true. All of that is based on, Jesus says, the unity that would be had by believers after the first century apostles. That's you. Do you understand? All of that rides on our functional and observable unity to the world, okay? It doesn't mean that we say we're united and then backbite and gossip about each other. It doesn't mean that we, we make some noises until things get difficult and then we rip each other apart because there's an election or something or a protest. It doesn't mean anything but the actual real deep unity that exists where we in these passages say are of one mind, contend as one person for the faith agree with one another, and so on. Right? One of the gospel songs that, that Debbie used to do, right, was, I need you to agree with me. Right? And that doesn't mean you throw your brain out. It means you work at it, and you work at it, and you work at it, and you work at it, until you come to agreement using the basis of your unity that you already had, which is Jesus. Right? Now, um, Over the course of the series, what we're going to specifically focus on is not just what is unity, but how is unity achieved and sustained, right? If things get more fractious in our country, more fractious in our city, are we going to come apart as a church, right? If things get more difficult in your marriage or with your roommates, if they're believers also especially, is it going to come apart, right? What if things get more fractious between you and God? (laughs) Is that going to come apart? Like, in in to what sense do we realize what it takes to sustain unity? As a citizen of the world, as a citizen of the country, as a resident of our city, as part of a network of friendships, as somebody who maybe has a romantic partner, a husband or wife, as somebody who's part of a family, who wants to have the kind of unity that we can have, the kind of warm relationships and flourishing. Um, today, I want to talk specifically about um, unity's limiting principle. In order to understand almost any concept, you need to understand where that concept stops. What limits it? What is that concept in relationship to? Otherwise, you'll just apply it blindly to everything, and you'll get some really bad applications of any concept. And the, the limiting concept of unity is purity in Christian faith. Right? Purity is the limiting principle of unity. However, it's also important, otherwise that's enough to lead us to be raving fundamentalists and legalists, right? Because if, if purity always trumps anything relative to unity, then we exclude and, ex- and separate and separate and separate and separate, right? However, purity is the limiting principle of unity. <laughs> I don't care how bad an experience you've had in like a fundamentalist church or with legalistic people or people that like everything matters about being right. Or remember what Mike said about this guy that um, they said he was kind of like a porcupine. He had a lot of good points, but nobody could get close to him, right? Like that kind of idea, right? Like there's people like that, and you're like, I don't like people like that. I don't want to be like that. Well, I mean, don't then. But that doesn't mean that purity isn't the limiting principle for unity. Purity is the limiting principle for unity. However, the opposite is also true. In a sense, unity is the directing principle of purity. What's purity for? Purity in what? Racial purity? Gender purity? Liking the Packers purity? Like, what kind of purity are we talking about? And on what basis 
is that the truth, and on what basis is it supposed to lead to unity? Like, in the gospel, the purity that we're seeking is around the gospel truth. And the purpose of that gospel is to redeem people into a new unified people that are the body of Christ. The purpose of the truth is to provide a future redemptive unity. Right? So yes, purity is the limiting principle on unity. Purity limits unity. But God's desire for a redeemed unity among a new people is the directing principle for what the, pure, the truth we're pure about is for. And if you forget either one of those, unity goes very wrong. Right? You could say it this way also, that there's no conflict between grace and truth. But that's too short. Right? I'm just kidding. So the, the first thing to think about is that purity is the limiting principle for unity. Purity is the limiting principle for unity, right? Not all unity is good, right? Think about the unity of the devils to destroy all image-bearing creatures and to wreak havoc upon creation. They are unified in that idea, right? That is a diabolical and a detestable unity, right? Most people would say historically that there was a lot of Nazi unity, right? A lot of Nazi unity. Well, th that wasn't good. There are despicable kinds of unity. There's also the fact that good unities can be contaminated and come apart, right? Think about anybody who's like, we don't like these people. Why are they saying we don't like these people? And the answer is because they believe that those people are somehow going to contaminate the unity that they have. The, whatever, they're, whatever they're unified around, these people are going to destroy, right? And you can see this everywhere. Right? I, I could give you some really offensive examples of this, but I'm just afraid it would distract you. But there's a lot of examples of this. Now, the, the question then is, in the Christian church, for human beings who are willing to turn to God in Christ, what is the principle, right? And the principle is very straightforward, right? It is not race, ethnicity, culture, background, temperament, your experiences. It's none of those things. You can have secondary unity on all of those things, right? I, as a Christian, I don't have to be offended if some of my black brothers and sisters get together to solve some problems specifically related directly to the black sub-community. I don't have to get upset about that and feel like I'm, like, kicked out because they have a unity around that. I don't have any problem with women having a Bible study that I'm not allowed to come to. They want to have a women's Bible study and talk about some stuff they're dealing with that's specific to their experiences and gender in their life. I'm fine with that. I'm okay with men having Bible studies. I'm okay with all kinds of sub-unities around things that are beneficial. What I'm not okay with is in the Christian church— for us to be sub-unified as the church, right? The church is unified on something very straightforward, that Jesus is Lord and King, that he has accomplished what we call the gospel, a means by which through faith we can be reunited to God and reconciled to him in forgiveness and made into a new people living toward his rule, which we call the kingdom of God. So it's Jesus is Lord, bringing the redemption of the gospel— so that we can be a people of the kingdom. That's it. That's what we're united about. Not all truths, right? Those truths and those integrally related, that is, truths that are connected, that if you take out, none of it works anymore. That is the basis of our unity, right? Because, humanly speaking, all unity has a basis. That's why purity matters, right? If you think about why you do anything with anyone, it's not for unity. Like, if you have a meeting, if I'm like, listen, you guys, we're going to have a meeting. It's going to be the unity meeting. Who's coming to that meeting, right? If you have a unity meeting, basically you get some really religiously sanctimonious people and some really politically sanctimonious people who don't like each other, who come basically because they want you to follow them on whatever they're doing, 
That's what happens. I've been to those meetings. I've literally been to unity meetings, and they are the most worthless meetings I've ever been to. Right? Because everybody's just there printing that they're a good person because they believe in unity. It's like believing that, like, apple pie is good. No one cares. Right? Nobody gathers around that. They gather around something important. Right? Winning a sports championship and loving something together or being really into a hobby. Every, people gather around. All friendships are usually based on some means of walking together. Even marriages, you're like, well, it's love. Well, it, it's love, but they also have hopefully a shared vision of the future, a shared vision of what a family is, what love actually means, how they want to value certain and different things in their life, what they think children are for, and how they should be raised, and so on, that they would actually walk together on the basis of u- a unified set of agreements. In the Bible, all of the places that specifically push us towards separation rather than unity are always on the basis of the purity of that truth. That Jesus is Lord, that he's brought the mechanism of reconciliation through the gospel so that we can become a people of the kingdom, right? Where that is affirmed, unity is always brought together. Where that is attacked, unity must break down because the basis of unity is being destroyed. Right? Think about—one of the most famous, quote, contradictions in the Bible— is um, where Jesus says in one place, anybody who's not for me is against me. And in another place he says, um, anybody who's not against you is for you. Right? That sounds weird. But the context, of course, is everything, right? Where he says, if you're not with me, you're against me. It's a very specific situation where he has the Lord Christ is driving out devils and bringing redemption so that people can be called to the kingdom. And the Pharisees, the religious people there are saying, this is a demonic trick where you're using the devil to drive out the devil. This is demonic. And Jesus is like, "Uh -uh! uh-uh! Uh-uh! No, everything rides on this point. Everything. Either I am the Christ who brings the reconciling gospel so you can be a people of the kingdom, or I am not. And you're either for me or you're against me on this point. And that's all there is to it. And if you call this demonic, you are participating in the kingdom of darkness. There, this, it's binary. It's purity. That truth must stand. The other situation is there's a guy who's believed in Jesus and realizes that there's redemptive power in Jesus' name, but he's not one of his apostles. And so this guy is out there casting out demons and like healing people in a spiritually mir- miraculous way in Jesus' name, right? And the apostles are like, what's this guy doing? He's not on our team. So they're like, Jesus, we found this guy, and he was casting out demons in your name, and we stopped him. And Jesus is like, what are you doing stopping him? He's on our team. He's out there believing I'm the Christ, bringing the redemption of the gospel to call people to be part of the kingdom, and you're stopping him? Why would you stop him? Anybody who's not against this is for us. Right? You see, the complete difference between those two is what we are unified on and what we're not unified on. Think about— um, uh, how, how much we should be like our neighbors, right? 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 9, the Apostle Paul says, um, I become all things to all people so that by all means possible I might save some. Right? To the Jews I become like Jews. To the Greeks I become like Greeks. I, I, like, I move towards my neighbors to be like them in every way possible, right? So that they can be saved, right? Because if you're strangely unlike people, it doesn't lead to natural unity, right? Like people, like people in the suburbs, they want you to put your car in the garage, They don't want you to have stuff in your lawn, right? I think all those things are stupid, but it really bothers them if you don't do it. And so if you want to have, like, a nice relationship, you can be unified on all those dumb suburban things. You know what I'm saying? And and that, like, helps build your relationship because people care about that stuff. 
know, make sure the right stuff is in your recycling bin, and make sure your lawn doesn't get above a certain height, and, you know, make sure your dog doesn't eat their chickens, that kind of thing. You know what I'm saying? Um, that one actually happened the reverse to us. But anyway, the point is, um, what Paul's saying is, be like your neighbors in every way possible. In 2 Corinthians, he says, listen, it says in the Bible, come out from them and be separate. You can't be like your neighbors. What? <laughs> right? If you go to a fundamentalist church, they love that 2 Corinthians 6 thing. Come out from them and be separate, right? If you go to like, a, a, like an evangelical, we're like everybody else. Hey, look, we're cool. Look at my boots, right? Like that church, they'll quote 1 Corinthians 9 all day long. And the answer is, well, what's the difference? Are we supposed to like be like our neighbors? Are we supposed to? And the answer is, yes and no. <laughs> like in all trivial ways, in order to build as much unity as possible as peacemakers with our non-believing neighbors, we are obligated, because we're supposed to be loving them, to be as like them as possible, not create division where division doesn't need to exist, right? Yet, where things matter in relationship to Jesus being the Christ, who brings the reconciling message of the gospel so that we can be people of the kingdom, we have no business being like our neighbors. Like in 1 Corinthians, where he says, I become all things to all people, in chapter 6, it was perfectly common for Corinthian men to like routinely go to prostitutes right? And he's like, yeah, you guys can't do that. Like, that's not a be like your neighbor thing, right? Because it is integral. Sexual ethics in the New Testament is fundamentally integral to the gospel. If you look at any place in the Bible where the Bible talks about sexual ethics, there is never any sense that it's a disputable matter, and there's never any sense that it's not a top-tier priority. To the apostles and to Jesus, sexual morality is a 100% integral to the gospel thing, right? It's one of the reasons why churches like ours haven't been like, you know, we'll do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. It's not at the heart of the gospel. Well, the problem is the New Testament treats it that way. And so when I have to decide between, should I become like my neighbors in Madison who think you should do whatever you want, whatever feels right, whatever, whoever you think you are, or whether you should live according to that particular ethic as taught like very straightforwardly throughout the whole Bible with no trajectory, right? This is a come out from them and be separate issue. But in things like how we dress and like what car you drive or like which team you like, what, you know, like even— in a lot of ways, I mean, even like I would, th I would think, even though some, some of us have very strong feelings about politics, that is not integrally a gospel issue where like you have to separate from people. I do, I do not think that that's right. But it's kind of funny because when I talk to the, my very liberal pastor friends, they are fundamentalists on that point. They are 100% snake handling fundamentalists on that point. I've gotten letters that like your church should not be a place where a Republican can come and feel like they can exist in church. Because they're that—they're wicked. And I'm like, what do you— do you drink strychnine poison and handle snakes when I'm not at your church? Like, like, how fundamentalist can you be? Right? And yet, there's so many, like, fundamentalist Baptist churches in Madison, and they, honest to God, don't think women should wear pants. Like, if you wear jeans, you are in sin. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, we have lost— why? 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 Because when you lose a handle on the principle of purity that Jesus gives, you create your own. And it will usually be idolatrous made into your own image according to your own thoughts. And friends, if we want to be a united people who are also a diverse people, we have to use Jesus' principle for the limitation on unity, which is that he is Lord, that he gives the reconciling message of the gospel for us to believe, and that he makes us people of his kingdom. Right. Now, uh, I, there's like five more examples I could give about that that are different examples where the same principle holds true, but I don't have time to do it right now. Let's uh, quickly look at the second thing, which is that unity is the directing principle of purity, right? Um, 
Jesus did not teach us to focus on purity so that we could be, um, let me get the right thing here, so that we could be the truth police. Do you understand? That's not the point. The point was not like to tell us all the true things so we could memorize all the true things and we could go to doctrinal classes and we could like know when people are wrong so that we could tell them. Right? That's what, that's, that's what Matthew 7 is about. Right? Where it says, don't judge lest you'll be judged. And then Jesus gives the two fundamental principles of judgment. One is, don't judge on a hypocritical principle. You are probably committing the exact same sin. You want to attack them for it. And you better be darn well you aren't before you talk to them. Right? And the second is, that your judgment cannot be of the condemnatory kind. Right? There's two kinds of judgment. There's discernment judgment. Hey, you better be careful or this is going to happen to you. If you keep going this direction, right? Otherwise, oh, Jesus was judgmental tons of times. There's all these places in the Bible where Jesus is like, look, you keep doing this, y'all go to hell. Like, nobody speaks about hell more than Jesus, but Jesus never spoke about hell trying to get people to give up and just go there. Right? Never did Jesus utter a threat. In fact, even in the Old Testament, when God is saying, listen, I'm going to destroy you. You're going to be carried away, and you're going to die, and you're going to die by the sword, and you're going to die by famine. When God is at the height of the you're going to die stuff through the prophets, in every case, it's because he wants them to stop, change their mind, so he cannot do the stuff he's saying he's going to do. Hence the book of Jonah. The most unlikely civilization, maybe almost in the history of man. I mean, the Assyrians were the most brutal horrifically unjust. They followed no rules but the rule of death. Right? God sends Jonah to them and says, you tell them, these people who cut off the hands of everybody in the city that they take and pile them up, and then they make pictures of it to put in their palaces, piles of heads, impaled pregnant women. You tell those people that in 30 days, I'm going to destroy them. And Jonah doesn't go because he knows he says later, I knew if I told them to repent, I told them, and remember, Jonah doesn't say, God's going to destroy you in 30 days, therefore you should repent. He doesn't say that. He just says, God is going to destroy you. There's no offer of gospel. There's no, why don't you turn around? Why don't you change your mind? Why don't you come to God? None of that. He just says, you're going to die. And they respond by saying, well, let's repent. And they do. And then Jonah goes up on the hill to sit and wait for God to judge them, right? The wrong kind of waiting on God. And, and, jo and, and Jonah is mad, mad enough to die, and he says, I knew, I knew that if they—the reason I didn't want to come here is because I knew that if I preached their destruction and they turned around, you would forgive them. I knew it! Right? Because, listen, even in the worst, most aggressive moments where God is saying, I'm going to kill you, he's saying it so that you'll live. Do you understand? He's always saying it so that you'll live. And so, whenever you and I advocate for the truth against unity, it is always for the purpose of future unity. Right? The, the Old Testament concept, concept of unity that's most relevant is a Hebrew word called shalom, which many of you have heard people talk about. Shalom is, is the generic Hebrew word for peace, but the, the concept is more robust than that. Right? The, the concept of shalom has in it a unity in which people flourish worshipfully, in a just peace. Right? right? Because remember, there's some unities that are awful. What God wants is the apex unity. God wants the greatest of all unities, which is a unity in which there is flourishing, worship, that is all things are rightly valued in their truth, including God, 
there is um, justice. So it's not like we have peace because we've like swept everything bad under the rug. Like we've actually, there's peace because we've actually achieved justice. Like everybody gets a, their right shake. Every, every neighbor receives from us what they are due, right? And we're at peace with each other. Like we love each other. We enjoy each other. We cooperate with each other. Like that is the unity God is after. So whenever purity comes in and limits unity, it's meant to be temporary so as to produce a better future unity that is shalom, where we flourish and worship and have real justice in true peace. That is the purpose. And anytime as a believer, we exert a dividing purity, it must always be for the end of future unity. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to get the future unity. There's sometimes God does all kinds of redemptive actions and people don't turn around and they end up destroyed. And we can't control those things. It's like peacemaking. But every action we do is meant to— Because some people say, listen, Nick, it's grace and truth, man. Truth is the message and, great, and, and grace is the means. No! Wrong! Truth is the message and grace is the message. And truth is the means and grace is the means. There is no disunity. What God has joined together, let man not put asunder. Jesus was full of grace and truth. He wasn't like intention about grace and truth. He was full of truth and he was full of grace and there was no distinction between them. He saw total unity. Because beauty in its fullest form is always true. Unity in its best flourishing form is always true. And when we offer something, things in love, we act for their true good. People's true good is always to come back into relationship with the truth. Because why? Because God is the complete embodiment of the truth. How can you come into oneness with God if you will not come in oneness with the truth? Accepting, embracing, living in, and believing the truth is fundamental to your ultimate unity with the one we most should want to be in unity with, which is God. And the one through whom he is revealed who is full of grace and truth. So, the limiting principle of unity is purity. There are times where we have to choose separation over unity, at least in the short term. It's the basis of church discipline, right? One of the worst things that we ever have to do is like to throw somebody out of the church because they openly and publicly live like they are not a believer. And we have to say, you can't, you can't call yourself a believer and do this. Those are incompatible, and we can't participate in you doing that, right? What's the point? Says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, the point is to hand them over to Satan so that by the time the day of the Lord comes, they'll belong to Jesus again. That's what he says. The whole goal is, is that they'll go back out into the world and they'll realize they made a terrible mistake. And the God whose arms are always open to receive them back is waiting for them. And they will come back and be really converted and saved and, and won. So, and then in 2 Corinthians, the guy has come back. And he's like, listen, I wrote to you in tears that that guy had to be kicked out of the church. In tears and in great dismay. And now if he's repented, like, he's been punished enough. Now is the point where you embrace him and you hold him and you cry with him and you receive him back and you make sure that he feels loved and cared for because the purpose was always he'd come back. Don't you remember Luke 15? <laughs> when the son, prodigal son comes back, the father doesn't like, you know, I think he needs to be punished a little more. That's not his attitude. His attitude is— Wear my arms that I may hug him. Like he rushes out to receive him back. Even in the Old Testament, where people think God is like the meanie God, which is, of course, a silly way to read the Old Testament. He's also the pushover God. 
right? The minute somebody turns around, he's like, this is awesome! And he like, doesn't do what he said he was going to do to him, right? Manasseh is maybe the greatest example. Evil for 50 years leads Israel the wrong direction. 50 years burning some of his children alive to worship idols. He gets thrown into a dungeon under the judgment of God. And in that dungeon, he repents. And God has him released and puts him back on the throne. Can you believe that? I mean, can you imagine? I want to be, be a pure church. I've always wanted to be a pure, pure church. If I had to pick loosey-goosey, we don't believe anything so we can all be together, with we need to stand for the truth so we have something to unite about, I'm the other, right? If I have to choose liberal fundamentalist, I'm a fundamentalist all the way, man, because I, I, we got to agree on something. We got to stand for something, right? However, at the turn of the 20th century, fundamentalists mean, meant we stand for the fundamentals. It didn't mean we fight with people because we, when we don't have to, we exclude from people that we're not called to be excluded from, or any of that. That's where it went wrong. That's why the word evangelical exists. Because a millions of fundamentalists broke away and became the neo-evangelicals because they said, we weren't called to that. We weren't called to the judgmental separationist. That's not what, that's not what purity means. We have to be engaged and in union with people and as much, as much as we can. And so purity is the limiting principle of unity. You, you need to understand that. In the gospel, it is a limiting factor. But it's not everything that we believe. It is Jesus is Lord, as embodying the message of the gospel so that we can be people of the kingdom. But then also, don't allow the emphasis on purity to, to make you forget that the purpose is final redemptive unity. That's always the goal. We never insist on purity to destroy future unity. The goal is always future unity. And so in everything that we do, whenever we have to be like, you know, hard and backbony about something, we always have to remember, am I doing this for final reconciliation, for final redemption, for final togetherness, for final union with God, for this person and in this context? Because that is always our goal. To contend as one man and woman for the faith and to be peacemakers wherever we go. That is the only concept by which Jesus said in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons and daughters of God. Why? Because that is the moment where we are most like him. The ritual of unity, which we're going to celebrate now. You guys can come and play some music if you want. Um, 